Hello, this is the Heart of the Piano podcast, and this is the first in a series of episodes about how understanding brain lateralization, the differences between the two brain hemispheres, can help us with our piano playing and musicianship. I personally can't emphasize enough how useful this information can be for understanding many of the elements of musicianship that are normally considered unteachable, as things that we either have or don't have. Innate talent is one way that people define many of these qualities. But some people may wonder just how useful this information might be in these first two episodes, in which we introduce and discuss the neuroscience of the brain hemispheres. My fellow co-host Jaisa is certainly healthily sceptical. So please do keep an open mind and continue listening all the way through until we get to the third episode of this series, which is more like a masterclass where another friend, Cheryl, very bravely volunteered to play the piano, and I spent that episode demonstrating how I coached Cheryl to apply the concepts from the first two episodes. So, without any further ado, here is the first episode. Hello, and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast, where we are exploring the world of piano. And uh, instead of Andy this time, I've got a brand new fellow presenter, uh, who is Yaisa uh, from a a piano meetup group. And Yaisa is a really good uh, amateur pianist. Yaisa, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Um, I would just say I'm not that good as an amateur pianist, <laughs> first, uh, uh. first of all. And... Uh, uh, well, professionally a vet, um, and that takes a lot of time. So I, I, I want to think that if I could dedicate more time to the piano, I would, I would be a better pianist. Uh, oh, I think you're you're doing absolutely <laughs> fine. Uh, yeah, uh, let's dive straight in because um, we've spent ages uh, trying to <laughs> uh, sort out all the technology for this. So yes, I'm very very excited that since the last podcast that I was doing to do with the psychology of playing and, uh, you know, how to be a good pianist and all that kind of stuff. It's been quite a few years, actually. And so um, I feel like I've made a, a giant amount of progression and taking all the ideas that I had before and gone into a lot more depth with them all. And um, today, what, what I think would be really helpful is to just look at one aspect of it. That I think that everything tends to keep sort of coming back to and everything's all sort of connected and related to everything else but I have found the concept of brain lateralization incredibly useful and so many concepts keep coming back to this so a lot of people might instantly be going oh my god not brain lateralization because for a long time uh, it was considered very very controversial like really Oh, that's just pop psychology. It's not real science. So I mean, it, it may in, be a good idea that you say that you that you explain to people what lateralization is. Was just about to do that. So so yes. Ah, right. So 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 <laughs> to the the way that most people I think would would get what this is is um, it's like left brain, right brain, and I think then instantly that that's going to mean something to a lot of people, um, and I think that um, to a lot of neuroscientists. The, the standard way that a lot of people talk about left brain, right brain is like, oh, the left brain is um, mathematical, it's analytical, and the right brain is creative and artistic. And it's, it's not quite as neat cut as that. And also, I think a lot of people get in trouble 
for saying, oh, I'm left-brained and, oh, I'm very right-brained, that's instantly going to get a load of neuroscientists going, there's no such thing as left-brained people and right-brained people. And, you know, there's quite a lot of nuance <laughs> and depth to all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, Yosa, what, 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 what do you know about brain lateralization, left-brain, right-brain? I don't know much uh, since we were talking about this, The uh, was it a week ago? Um, uh, yeah. I haven't had much time, but I looked at a few articles in in cats, which is my <laughs> my my topic of interest, my main topic of interest. I found uh, a couple of things. I found in cats the uh, emotional reactivity has been studied in 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 relation to the symmetry of the hemispheres, yeah. and uh, and it's uh, it seems like laterality is associated with the with the gender in cats as well. So, really? um, and that meant I've been thinking a lot about it since since you since you said it, and, and, and then I found out that it, it influences the hearing as well because the, we are more prepared to understand the the speech if um, if we hear it through the through the the right ear as well. Apparently, there's a, a some sort of something called right ear advantage. Um, I think but, it will uh, probably depend on what it is that we're listening to and the kind of information that it has, I'm going to guess. Probably, uh, yeah. I mean, this is very complicated. I, I, I tried to have, a, you know, like a, just get some ideas about what it is, what it, it, it all is about. Uh, but it, it seems quite a, a complex topic. And uh, yeah, but it, it was very intriguing how at some uh, some authors have tried to find a relationship between welfare um, and emotional reactivity and, and yes. the laterality as well. And I guess that emotional reactivity, if it's got something to do with, I mean, if, if this has anything in common with, uh, with humans, I guess that emotional reactivity <laughs> may influence our piano playing as well as uh, perhaps our cognitive function when we are learning. I don't know. Yes. Well, well, the, the, all the studies really link very, very strongly to one hemisphere showing much more strongly for certain kinds of emotions than others. But when it comes to music and playing, it gets way more complicated. But anyway, let me, let me go back and sort of get to how I came across, um, the whole topic of brain lateralization. So, um, people who've, who've listened to some of the previous podcasts may know that I, I got really hung up on this concept of over-narrow focus. And uh, I was really noticing that people who weren't playing as well as they could be really had this intense, narrow focus. Um, and I talk about it quite a lot in some of the old podcasts. Uh, and I will leave various notes in the um, the show notes. The show notes can be found at heartofthepiano.com. Anyway, so there was one particular lesson, and I really remember this lesson very, very strongly. It was with a young teenage girl, and she was doing sight reading. And, um, and in this lesson, I could see that when she was sight reading, she was just staring at every single individual note. And... Um, and at the time, I was like, well, the kind of state of mind that you want to be in when you're sight reading is you really want to not only take in all of the, the, the as much visual information as you can in, in kind of a bigger chunk, not just individual elements, but it's like you, you recognize it 
in the same way that that you do you you look at somebody's face because when when you're when you're sight reading it's not only the the notes but well what's the mood of it what's the atmosphere um if this was a person would they be a male or a female person would they be old or young what are they moving like and and then um you know i was sort of saying it's it's very very much like looking at somebody's face and when you look at someone's face you don't look at their their nose or a spot on their nose and the shape of the nose and the shape of the mouth and look at the mouth and the ear and then piece it all together and go, ah, oh, it must be Yaita <laughs> or whoever. You, know, you just <laughs> see it. You just see the whole lot in one go. And and you sort of have to try and see it in, in, in that kind of way. And then when I got home, I was sort of thinking, well, I, I wonder what psychologists refer to that as because it's clearly a different way of perceiving things you know it's like just this narrow focus looking at individual things versus just this sort of seeing everything all at the same time in a way that has character and emotion and that you recognize people and it turns out that psychologists called this fundamental difference analytic processing and holistic processing so analytic is just looking at individual elements and then building the whole from the parts and holistic is just seeing the whole thing in one go as what some people call a gestalt, like seeing a face. And then uh, I read this amazing book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about to do with brain lateralization, left brain, right brain, is going to come from this book. It's a massively influential book. And then it just instantly became clear that this is what the two hemispheres of the brain do. One hemisphere is designed to look at detail, individual details, and build a big picture from the small details. And the other hemisphere is basically designed to look at the whole thing, to see it all in one go and recognize instant sort of large patterns that is like the the basic job of the the two hemispheres of the brain and um, and i said to yaisa because uh, being a a cat expert um a veterinary specializing in cats and uh did I, I can't remember did you say earlier on that that you have your own podcast specifically to do with uh feline veterinary uh, feline medicine yes i've, I've yes. left it aside for a while uh because i, I, I yeah I've started a new job and I'm doing other things <laughs> with this new job. <laughs> it keeps me busy, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I said I said I'd try and keep bringing it back to cats. So almost every single living organism has some kind of lateralization, meaning the brain is not symmetrical, or or even even if the brain is only a few neurons, like tiny, like tiny sort of. That the organisms that only have a few cells or something that has some kind of brain. The brain already is split in two and is not symmetrical, i.e. it has lateralization. And the evolutionary psychological explanation, the possible explanation, and there's so much evidence for this, there's so much evidence, is that one hemisphere is basically does the this sort of holistic processing because when um that part of the brain is scanning everything in the environment it's able to look out for danger by just sort of seeing everything all at once and then the other the other hemisphere the other side of the brain uh which looks at individual details 
This is about survival. This is about eating. What is it that they can eat? How do you eat it? It's uh, having shelter, just sort of things to do with manipulating the environment. It requires an understanding of the world, basically. Understanding, and usually understanding the world, is about splitting it into categories and looking at individual things within it. So... Um, I, I do talk about cats quite a lot when, when I'm teaching because cats are just are so um, beautiful as an example of uh, when a cat is relaxed. A cat is so relaxed. <laughs> um, <laughs> purring, just, you know, just uh, half asleep. Um, those are the times when you look at cats and go, wouldn't it be great? To, wouldn't it be great to be a cat? <laughs> They're just so relaxed, <laughs> so chilled out. And that's the epitome of a sort of uh, a right brain. And, and the cat in that state is not focused on any one particular thing. It's like a, just an aware of, of everything. But if something suddenly happens, if there's a noise, suddenly the ears will point in one direction, the eyes will point in one direction, and there'll be an intense, fierce focus in one direction. And that's really the epitome of like the, the left uh, brain hemisphere state. But when I'm explaining left brain, right brain in humans, it's like the, the right hemisphere is like the relaxed cat. <laughs> and the left hemisphere is like the, the hunting cat. I was reading as well that the right hemisphere is more... Uh, linked to the playfulness and synth yeah. the synthesizing as well, yes. and the metaphoric thinking. Whereas, yes. uh, but the but the left hemisphere is still necessary to achieve ba balance. Oh yeah, 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 yes, yes. So, oh yes, all this good stuff coming up, and uh, this may have to go over a few podcast episodes because it is there is so much stuff to talk about, and some people may be listening <laughs> to this going. What? What are they going on about? What possible relevance has this got to playing instruments? But please stick with us because, ah, oh, there's so much relevance. And by the time that, that we get into the really, the, the meaty stuff of all of this stuff, I'm going to show you the absolute practical ways that we can use this information to become better musicians. So um, I'm, uh, I sort of got a little bit ahead of myself because I think that's sort of quite a useful way a sort of deep way of understanding what the two hemispheres do, which is that the right hemisphere basically absorbs raw experience. So what we experience through the senses, um, uh, all the different senses of touch, smell, hearing, uh, you know, all of them, raw experience with no thinking, that just is straight away That's the experience of the right hemisphere. It's just the, the, the pure experience of the world through the senses. But then we wouldn't last long in this world if, if that was it. <laughs> We'd just be helpless. <laughs> and, and in fact, children are predominantly processing the world through the right hemisphere. And as babies and children mature and learn, then there is a gradual maturation of the of the left hemisphere. But at first, like the, the raw experience is the right brain hemisphere. And and also, I just also want to throw in, I should have said this before, but anytime we talk about the two brain hemispheres, it's incredibly unsubtle. And there will be exceptions to all of these things. And so, for example, you know, there's the front of the brain and the back of the brain. There's different areas of the brain that do particular things. So every time neuroscientists talk about the left brain and the right brain, they always have to back it up by saying, this is 
always overgeneralized, but it's still sometimes useful to talk about these generalizations, especially when it allows us to understand very specific things about the world and gives us strategies. You know, if it works, it's useful. Anyway, having, having said all that. So then what happens once we've had all this raw sensory experience is we need to be able to understand the world. We need to be able to make predictions about how the world works so that we can survive in it, so that we can manipulate the world, we can understand what it's going to do and sort of build theories and maps about how the world works. And generally, the way that the left brain does this is by building categories. Is it a this or a that? And sort of fundamentally, um, most of the way that we understand the world is through splitting everything into two. So, you know, there, there's two possible ways that, that, that we can be using different brain hemispheres when we're playing music. One, if we're using the, the, the right hemisphere predominantly, that is just going to be the raw sound. It's going to be the feeling um, uh, of the sound. It's how it makes us feel. It's the feelings inside the body. It's like the almost like uh, the, the textures, the, the, you know, what emotions are there. It, it doesn't really have so much labeling. So what the, the left brain kind of experience of music is, that's the note C, that's the note D, that, that is a dominant seventh chord. That's a piano. <laughs> that, that sounds like a piano. That's good. That's bad. It, it becomes a lot more dominated by mental labels. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that it's going to be almost impossible to ever listen to anything without some kind of label somewhere. But I can definitely think of times where I'm much more immersed in the, the raw experience of it with the emotions and the feelings. And other times when I'm sort of in my head and analysing it and having a lot of opinions about it. So, um, yeah, yeah. What do you think, Yaisa? Yeah, it's true. Um, the degree of distraction when, when you're playing, uh, I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm very relaxed when I'm playing, but I lose the focus and, and I'm not particularly thinking of what I'm playing, but just playing, but thinking of something else, like distracted or... Hmm. Hmm. That that may not necessarily be a left brain thing. Sometimes, sometimes we could be distracted by a feeling in our bodies, let's say of anxiety and get distracted by that. That might not necessarily be a left brain thing. So, um, mm. but, uh, but we can certainly get distracted by thoughts and by, uh, and I think that, that, you know, listening to music with a, a strong sense of analysis and what it should be rather than just experiencing it how it is. That's, that's a really fundamental difference. Yeah. Doesn't it depend a lot on the minute you're in and how relaxed you are that day? I just feel like sometimes mm. it's as if I had a, an internal metronome and, and sometimes I wake up in the morning and I start playing and uh, rhythm is all right and everything seems like, seems to <laughs> flow. And some other times my internal metronome doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> somehow, yes. It's somehow so, it doesn't flow. And uh, it's much more difficult to get like a, a global impression or, or a global perception of my, the music I'm making. I, and I get more analytical because I've got to sort it out. Yes. So, yes, that's going to lead me on to one really useful point about the two different hemispheres, which is that the right hemisphere very, very much is connected to the body. It, it cares 
about the body and I'm talking like about it like it's a sort of an entity in its own right um I'll I'll come back to that in a minute I will I will come back into sort of talking about the right brain hemisphere wants this likes this does this the left brain hemisphere does that and I'll, I'll sort of justify how I talk about those things in a minute although it does sometimes um, upset some uh, neuroscientists anyway so yes the the right brain is really cares about what the body is feeling the left brain hemisphere really doesn't. <laughs> the, the left brain hemisphere, in many ways, wants as little to do with the body as possible and wants a, a sort of a much more abstract, uh, logical, cool, less concerned with emotions, less concerned with emotions of other people. So coming back to, to what you were saying, Yais, about an internal metronome, um, so, uh, something I want to come to in future episodes is the concept of embodiment and this thing called embodied cognition and how a lot of things are really have to be experienced through the body and that the left brain might think that it can understand everything without needing a body but all the latest advances in psychology and neuroscience say that the brain really wouldn't understand much at all without without the body and that the body fundamentally fundamentally changes what is going on in the mind in ways that i think since western philosophy went to an extreme with descartes who said i think therefore i am and and basically all of western philosophy for the most part sort of really believes very strongly in the dualism in a big split between mind and body um all the recent science is saying there is fundamentally no split between mind and body. They are the same thing. Um, anyway, I'm going off on a huge tangent. So, so the metronome is something that we feel inside our body. When we're more aware of the feelings inside our body, we're much more likely to, ha to have a sense of pulse because the pulse is something we feel through the body. Now, if we go into quite a, a left brain dominated state, which is narrow focused, and doesn't want to feel stuff in the body, it's going to be a lot more likely that we have no idea what the pulse is, because that's something that's, that's, that we feel in the body. And, and as part of a whole load of things that all happen all at the same time. So um, anyway, I said I was going to talk a little bit more about this brain hemisphere, you know, wants this, this brain hemisphere does that. There's, there's a load of really interesting ways that, that we can have information about what the two brain hemispheres do. Um, so some of them are that this doesn't happen anymore. But I think in the first half of the 20th century, there, there used to be this condition where people had epileptic fits. And the way that they fixed this was by cutting the the um the part of the brain that that connects the two hemispheres together um so the the two hemispheres just couldn't talk to each other and then it became a lot clearer about what the two different hemispheres did especially if you presented information to only one eye or only one side of the body or only one ear then it became really clear how that hemisphere dealt with things but also there, there's other ways you can do it um it, it's it's possible um to um, paralyze, I think, one half of, 
of the brain, which is something that neuroscientists do when they want to figure out which hemisphere is doing what. Um, there's, um, again, sort of other experiments that you can do by just showing things to, to one eye, one ear and not the other. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of other stuff. I can't, I can't remember. Oh, and, and one of the really important ones. When there's, um, when something goes wrong with the brain, when there's a tumor or a lesion and then that part of the brain stops working, then it becomes really clear and obvious what that part of the brain is supposed to do when it stops working. So, so that's a really uh, useful one. And so, um, when part of the brain stops working, it then sort of, so, so for example, let's say that, that somebody has um, a massive problem with the right brain hemisphere. There's like a, a tumor or something that, that, that results in the right brain hemisphere. It, it stops working. Very often, what happens is that people suddenly have this weird perception that their body is completely alien to them, that they don't want this weird body thing attached to them, that, that it's sort of almost like mechanical. And, uh, so, so there's all kinds of quirks like that, which is, which is how, you know, we can say that the, the left brain has, you know, particular quirks that it's not concerned with, with the emotions and, and, and having a body. Anyway, I could, I could get drawn down a huge long rabbit hole about that, but <clears throat> I think what will probably be useful <laughs> is just to pull back a little bit and just to sort of talk about the fundamental differences between the, the two um, hemispheres, which go a little bit deeper than just one is has a narrow um, a narrow focus and one has a, a broad focus. Is, is it kind of, is it clear, yeah, yeah, Isa, why it is that the left brain hemisphere has a really narrow, tight focus and the right hemisphere has this broad, um, global yeah, I attention. think so. You, yeah, I think it was it was clear when when you talked about the evolutionary perspective, and I think uh, it's uh, and I think from a practical, very practical point of view, um, I think uh, it's just more effective, isn't it? If you've got to defend yourself, or if you've got to hunt something really quickly, yeah, uh, or yeah, yeah. solve any tasks really quickly, uh, you don't want to be thinking which boar am I going to use or which hunt am I going to use. You just yeah, yeah. do it with, I mean, that bias is kind of useful. Yes, yes. And also they can both kind of act at the same time. So they both have their, they're, they're both very, very fast at what they do. And the brain doesn't have to sort of switch to a different way of perceiving things. But, uh, but yeah, so, so basically, as well as, um, especially mammals, um, uh, I think, as well as having to survive in the world, there's also it's also very useful to be able to get along with your fellow animal species. So you know, as as humans, it's incredibly useful to get along with with other humans and form social groups and um, and know how to get on with them and and relate to parents and um, know which humans you can trust and which you can't trust and all that kind of stuff. So all that kind of stuff is stuff that's not very well dealt with a sequential, logical, narrow focus, this, that, that. That's stuff that's much better perceived by a hemisphere that just sees a whole load of things all at once, that perceives many, many things all in parallel very, very quickly and gets sort of feelings for things. Because, you know, getting on with, with people, it's all about the relationships in between people rather than seeing discrete individual things in their own right, which is what the left hemisphere does. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So anything really, which is to do with the relationships between things, how things fit together, rather than discrete, individual, atomized things, is stuff that's much better dealt with by the right brain hemisphere. So to bring this back to, to pianists and musicians, something that can happen from the beginning when we're learning is we have to play this note C, this note D, this note E, and then we go C, D, E. Uh, sorry for people who have perfect pitch. I have no idea if they're the right notes or not. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, um, C, G, E, D. And, you know, we can perceive it, this note, this note, this note. And a lot of the time, you know, I can just imagine someone with their head bobbing forwards on every single one, this note, this note, this note. Or you can hear, da, da, da. And you can hear, like how they all fit together. And uh, um, was it Debussy that said that music is all about the spaces in between the notes? And um, mm. and I think this is really, really useful because when we're... Um, uh, 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 yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of jumping a bit ahead of myself here. But um, when we're under pressure, when we're under stress, there's a tendency to switch to left brain seeing things individually. And really, really music... Um, when we're enjoying it, when we're really perceiving music and music's really doing its job, it's all about the, the relationships between the notes. And not only the relationship between the notes, but between the music and us, and between us and other people, and between the music and our body. And, and it's, it's so deeply interconnected. But there is this danger that, that when there are threats to our sense of competence, um, or anything that sort of threatens our sense of being good, or threats to our ego, there's a really strong instinct for our body to switch immediately into a state, which is, oh, I have to get in a narrow focus and look at this individual thing, this individual thing, this individual thing. And hopefully it's sort of becoming clear that that's not an optimal state for music. Yeah, yeah, it is very clear. And I get what you mean. And I was also <laughs> thinking, like, when it's listening to you, that there are sometimes unexpected chords or maybe not unexpected, but some, somehow surprising. And that mm. tends to somehow um, change the duration of the chord in con unconsciously and as if uh, we became slightly more analytical in that specific context and then we carried on uh, performing more musically as, as you've just said um, and that's not particularly bad I mean it, it, it may give you a change like a sort of attention as well as you're playing that may not be I mean, may, maybe may not be purely analytical and may, I may be uh, mixing up uh, the concepts but that sometimes mm. I perceive it that way as if you were speaking and suddenly you stopped um, at a word that you find particularly interesting or or worth of a, a thought. Yeah and I, um, I get what you're saying but I think in many ways that that's the epitome of the right brain because if we're playing And a particular chord suddenly is unusual. It's unexpected. And we go, ooh, ooh, listen to that unexpected chord. How do we know that's unexpected? We only know it's unexpected because of its relationship to the other chords. Now, so much of the time when, when I'm teaching and somebody is playing and there's a beautiful, there's that moment of the unexpected harmony. 
and they just play straight through it without any awareness of it at all. That is the left brain because the left brain doesn't know. The left, the left brain just is going, I'm playing this chord, I'm playing this chord, I'm playing this chord, I'm playing this chord. But when we're in the right brain state, we play this chord, we play this chord, and then there's this chord and the, and the right brain goes, oh, that was unexpected. Um, we only know that because of the context and that's the right brain hemisphere. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, for for example, uh, I don't know. I'm gonna sing "Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star." And if I just go da 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 da, that's sort of quite left brain. It's just you know one note at a time. But if we go da 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 da, you know, like, and and I'm sure you can hear that that I'm. I'm sort of naturally finding a little bit more tension, like at the end, um, da, 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 that there's sort of a little bit more, oh, we're getting to the end. Oh, there's this sort of, um, there's a different feeling here. And it's only that, uh, well, well, no, not only, because we actually could analyze it. We could analyze it. We could analyze the structure and then go, ah, oh, this is the final cadence before we get to the end. So the left brain hemisphere could understand it, but, but for most people, that there's this right brain intuitive feeling, ah, oh, we're almost at the end and that note has a little bit more tension. It's like, you know, when people go, da, 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 and everyone knows that's not finished. We don't have to analyze it to know that. That's the right brain. The right brain just knows the pattern and, and it has this feeling of, oh, that's not finished. Um, because when we get to that that note just before the final note, there's a context for it. It's the relationship between that note and the other notes. But a beginner will just go da, 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 and not hear that that's incomplete because that's the left brain state. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yes, I think uh, I remember my my piano teacher's mother. I sometimes would, would attend to, to lessons with her when my my teacher couldn't make it and, and she was really good. Uh, and uh, I was very little when she said this to me, but, but I had already learned to do it when, when I started reading uh, books, uh, and I mean, letters and uh, words. And, and then she mm. said, yeah, but now to read, you have to anticipate what's coming. And, uh, it, it was like, yeah, it's what, I mean, it's, I, I don't know what, it, it's not exa- exactly what you're saying, but, uh, uh, you've got in order to have uh, to, to 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 do it, you have to anticipate a little what what is coming as well. Whereas if you play note by note, you it, it's very obvious that you are not taking into account what what okay what what you have before that and what's coming afterwards. There's mm. no link. And um, and I think sometimes as well that the, the left brain just wants to oh also by the way i'm yeah i'm just going to explain another thing again i should have explained this at the beginning a lot of people discount this idea of the the left brain the right brain because when people have brain scans they go well both sides of the brain are working it's not like one side of the brain just isn't working and they go it's nonsense both brains both sides of the brain are, are doing their job something that ian mcgilchrist points out in his book which i think is very compelling and he has a, a, he points out a lot of evidence for this is that um, he believes there's this winner-take-all, he calls it, uh, that the two brain hemispheres compete 
to see which hemisphere is going to be dominant. Um, I think that the analogy that, that works for me is like, which one is driving the bus? <laughs> and so what happens <laughs> is that, that the two hemispheres want to be the one driving. And, um, and in any given moment, it might just be that one hemisphere has a very slight perceived edge over the other that, that, that thinks I'm going to be better for this job than the other one. And when that happens, there's like a central part of the brain that goes, here you go, you have the steering wheel. And what Ian McGilchrist argues very, very convincingly is that whichever hemisphere is, is in charge has a very, very strong inhibitory effect on the other hemisphere. So basically, whichever hemisphere is working, the other hemisphere is shut down. Even if it kind of looks like it's working in a, in a scanner, the, the point of all of the, the connecting neurons, the, the, the corpus callosum, the thing that connects the, the two halves of the brain, its function, the theory is, is to inhibit the other side of the brain from the side that is in charge. Now, what's really interesting about this, and it's so tricky because there's so many things that I want to say about this all at the same time, in a very right hemisphere, dare I say it, kind of way. But um, um, <laughs> the way that the left hemisphere tends to work is that when the left hemisphere is driving the bus, it really doesn't want input from the right hemisphere. It's, it's totally not interested. It totally, as much as it can, shuts down the right, the right hemisphere. Now, now it does, it is open to some right hemisphere input. Uh, otherwise, uh, for example, that the left hemisphere controls the right hand side of the body. Very, very bad at controlling the left hand side of the body. So, so when the left brain hemisphere is in charge, it needs to let the right hemisphere control the left-hand side of the body. Um, yeah, obviously. Uh, so, if, it, if, if that didn't happen, it would be chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, it's not, it's not just, it's only the left-hand side of, of, of the brain. But it's fair to say that when the left-hand side is kind of in charge, that there is a huge amount of inhibition of the right hemisphere that goes on um, in that moment. And what is what Ian McGilchrist comes back to over and over again, which is the central point of his book, is that the right hemisphere is actually much more uh, interested in what the in what is going on in the left brain hemisphere so when the right brain hemisphere is driving the bus it actually allows the left brain hemisphere to be the navigator and go uh, and sort of it, it it then passes stuff to the to the left hemisphere without the left hemisphere having to take charge to go what do you think of this information? And then the left hemisphere passes it back and the right hemisphere is, is still in charge. So the whole point of Ian McGilchrist's book is basically that when the right brain hemisphere generally is allowed to be dominant and in charge, that's a very healthy state to be in because it treats the left hemisphere as a servant, if you like, and, and it mm -hmm. sort of it gives it stuff to do and then takes it back. Whereas the left hemisphere just thinks that it is in charge and doesn't think that a right hemisphere is needed. <laughs> and so the, the whole point of Ian McGilchrist's book is that we live in a modern world dominated by uh, ways of thinking that, that tell us that the right brain hemisphere is useless and that we should only be using our left brain hemisphere. But anyway, again, I'm getting really ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> so, um, so where was I before I went on that, that giant um, tangent? So, so yes, I've kind of forgotten exactly where I was in that moment of time, but I think that where I was getting to was to um, 
get to the point of understanding that when we are in a left brain dominated state where the left brain hemisphere is driving the bus, it's very, very difficult to objectively see that we're in that state because the left brain hemisphere just goes, um, well, of course I'm in charge. That's how things should be. <laughs> and it's very, very difficult to persuade the left brain hemisphere to let go of the steering wheel. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, when a, a lot of the, the neuroscience uh, and, and the, the sort of, um, uh, by the way, I used to love this book when I was, um, when I was younger. I think I was 12 or something when I read The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Um, have you read that, Yaisa? No, I haven't, but I've, I've, I've got it on my list. It's one of the books I want to read, yeah. Mm. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, it's, it's basically What is it about? By, so it's basically, it's written by a, a neuroscientist um, who I, I think likes to think of himself as like almost like an anthropologist. So he looks at people who have things wrong with their brain and looks at them very deeply and very empathically as human beings going... God, isn't it amazing what the brain does? And when this part of the brain goes wrong, this is what happens to to the person. And I was fascinated by this. So I think from from being quite young, I've been very interested in, you know, in sort of how the mind works, how the brain works, all this kind of stuff. But again, like, like I keep saying, I, 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 if people stick with me, there, there are very, very real applications for how this can work for, for musicians. So anyway, the, the left brain state characterized by a real gripping, a real sort of gripping on into, I need to be in control of this. Uh, and I'll, I'll come more onto that because the, this, this whole concept of gripping, it's more than just a metaphor, but, but I'll come back to that. And then the, the right brain hemisphere, it's much more open and receptive. So something that that is really really interesting so so what the left brain hemisphere does is it it, it tries to predict how the world is it, it it builds strong beliefs and maps about how the, how the world functions and um, when someone has damage to their right brain hemisphere you can show things to the left brain hemisphere that are obviously complete nonsense but if it doesn't fit with what the left brain hemisphere believes. The, the the left brain hemisphere will completely reject it in the face of completely overwhelming evidence. So so the, the left brain hemisphere, it's just not open to anything that is new. The left brain hemisphere wants to work out its understanding of the world and then bang, it is shut. It is not interested in anything new, anything further to seeing the world. But the right brain hemisphere, it's always open to anything that, that's sort of new. So something that's useful here in terms of, of music. I'm sure that, that we've all had that experience where we're learning a piece of music and we just stop hearing it. It's just, oh, it's that piece of music. So generally to the, the brain, anything that has a sense of familiarity, anything that's becoming automatic, that's familiar, that's a left brain function. Anything that's unfamiliar or new, novel, uh, has a sense of freshness and newness to it. That is the right brain hemisphere. So I think that that's sort of quite useful because so much of the time, if we're not careful when we're playing, it's just, oh, it's just this piece. Oh, it's just these notes. We don't hear it fresh. 
And, and I remember, you know, well before I was thinking about brain hemispheres and all this kind of stuff, it was really clear to me where, um, where, when I was teaching that I would say to people, you need to hear music as if you've been deaf all your life and suddenly someone's operated on you and you can hear you this is the first time in your life that you can hear or as if you've never heard a piano before and suddenly you know you you have to hear it as if you've never heard it before and and yes this is exactly like the difference between the right brain and the, le- the left brain the left brain goes oh it's just that mozart oh it's just that whatever it is oh it's just these notes and the right brain is like you're hearing it as if you have never heard it before what what do you think yeah, sounds good. I mean, sometimes if you're not in the right mood, I guess it it is difficult to to pay that much attention and to fully comprehend or 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 embrace what you're listening to. Mm. I mean, I think that in itself can be a real skill, and um, you know, something that I'll keep coming back to after we've gone into brain lateralization is Buddhism, meditation, and mindfulness. <laughs> uh, because hmm. it's it's so important because uh what is buddhism and what is meditation and mindfulness if not in a very very deep way the practice of moving towards a much more right brain way of perceiving things than a left brain way of perceiving things it's not that's not 100% of the picture but i think it's a good 90% of it a good 90% of buddhism it's is the the way your left brain perceives the world is not very helpful. And it's much more helpful when you perceive everything through the right brain hemisphere. Yeah, I was thinking of meditation as well. I, I don't meditate myself, but uh, but I, w- I was thinking how important it is to, to be in the right mood when you're going to play. Yeah. Um, and so, and so and meditation, it's, it's literally practicing how to use those parts of your of your brain and and it's not just it's it's not as simple as just the right brain hemisphere it's it's a it's a bit more involved than that but that's a a good part of it and so sitting down and practicing how do i manage to persuade my left brain hemisphere to let go and stop holding on so much and uh, allow my experience of the world to become more right brain hemisphere. It is a skill, because if it wasn't a skill, if it was easy, no one would need to practice meditating for for decades. (laughs) I mean, people spend their whole (laughs) lives learning meditation. It's not a a simple, straightforward thing. So, but, but, you know, I, I, I just want to put this out there, that this is a thing that can be practiced. And actually, you know, all my life, as far as I can remember from... From being a pianist, uh, I mean, I think I was doing this as young as eight or, or nine, uh, because I was fascinated by, um, you know, I, I wanted to be a good pianist and I wanted to spend as little time as possible sitting there doing really boring practicing and getting frustrated. And, you know, the, 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 you know, none of us in the beginning, I think, really enjoy practicing. And I, I wanted to, I wanted shortcuts. I wanted to know how can I spend the least amount of time practicing and then just perform really well. And I worked out that if I became aware of how my mind was when I was practicing, 
So what was, where was my attention? What kind of attention did I have? I worked out really quickly that, that I could learn things way more quickly if I was using my attention in particular kinds of ways than others. And so I became really interested as I was practicing in, in, in how my attention was being used. Now, looking back on it, that is meditation. That is exactly what meditation is. Um, it's just that I think I wasn't smart enough to do it in the rest of my life. I only did it in music, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, I think people who are sort of really naturally gifted, uh, who are young, I think naturally do this. They They just know how to use the what the best ways are of using their focus and attention in a, in a way that feels right anyway so uh yeah I, i'm not going to try and get drawn into that too much um no uh, but the, the mood yeah. is, is kind of i wanted to say something i read today and it doesn't it is a little bit con- contradictory uh, with what you're saying now but i haven't read the full article or if i read it it was a couple of days ago and i've read so much in the meantime that i can't yeah, remember yeah. which article i did i get it from but um but I, I will email it to you. And, uh, one, like a note I took was that the negative mood, it was a study, I think it was a study comparing to, to musics and the effects on the people. And, um, I think they compared Beethoven, the Pathetic, the, uh, the Sonata with, mm. uh, something, uh, from Mozart. Uh, and negative mood induction because the Beethoven one was, was chosen as the saddest, <laughs> as the saddest of both. Uh, yes. ne- negative mood induction activated the right hemisphere. Um, mm. and that's, yeah, yeah, so I was just reading this and, and I'm finding how complex these things are. Um, and, uh, oh, you've, and you've opened a can of worms though. You've opened a massive can of worms <laughs> because, yes, indeed. All the really deeply negatively valenced emotions, I think is the way that psychologists put it, in particular sadness. Sadness is is the emotion of the right hemisphere, if you want to kind of put it that way. Deep, deep sadness mm. is such a right um, hemisphere emotion. And and there are some... Uh, oh, God. Um, do I really want to open this this can of worms? Um, okay, so so basically i'm i'm going to just go into some things super quickly which is that the right brain hemisphere is fundamentally all about deep interconnectedness it's not about individual this thing that thing that thing that thing which is how the left brain is it's about a whole load of interconnected things so the right brain hemisphere is interested in the body because the body is is all interconnected there's um how we how we're experiencing the world in any given moment, is experienced very deeply with every part of our body. So um, in many ways, most emotions, most emotions are felt in the body. Sadness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to go through all, through all the different emotions, but, but there are some particular emotions that are handled by the left brain hemisphere. Now, and I feel like suddenly from going quite slowly through all these different points, I'm suddenly now speeding up and driving a hundred miles an hour. So, so to the right <laughs> brain hemisphere in, in many ways, n- not completely. And I'm overgeneralizing, but in many ways, there is no separate sense of me and you. It's just everything is interconnected. Everything is just all one thing. It's deeply interconnected. And and in many ways, it's the left brain hemisphere's job to go, hang on a minute, there's a me. 
I exist. And because I exist, I have to survive. And so there's a me that needs to do things to manipulate the world and survive in this world. So emotions that are connected to do with the survival of the self tend to be processed by the left brain hemisphere. So they are things like anger, jealousy, all those kinds of things. But then, you know, emotions like sadness and all these uh, other emotions, they're all connected with this deep interconnectedness with other people and with the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it makes sense, yeah. Um, but then there are other findings as well, and this was the can of worms I'm, I wasn't sure I wanted to open. When people get damaged to their right brain hemisphere... So, hello again. I'm afraid I need to interject again. This is uh, editing Bob rather than interviewing uh, Bob. And so um, I, I just need to point out here that obviously I got this wrong. When there is a problem with the left hemisphere... That means that all we have left working is the right hemisphere. And if all we have working is the right hemisphere, that can lead to depression because we need some left hemisphere to be cheerful, to be happy, to be uh, joyful, all that stuff. And actually, in fact, there are studies that when there is damage to the right hemisphere, which means that then there is only working left hemisphere, people have like a a mania, a, a cheerful mania, like like relentless um, cheerfulness, which is a bit disconcerting. So anyway, sorry for the interjection. And uh, here we go, carrying on with the show. Sometimes they can fall into depression. So <laughs> there is also a very mm. slight melancholy to the right brain hemisphere. And mm. I think that this isn't really quite understood enough yet. It It might be that in order to be really, really happy and joyful in the world, we need a little bit of a sense of not being connected to all the tragedy and sadness in the world. We need to be a little bit selfish, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but but it's complicated. It is really complicated. So, so yes, we, we were talking about the, the, um, the emotions uh, and how the emotions are split across the hemispheres. And I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that music, whether we're listening to music or performing it, is about emotions. That's pretty uncontroversial, I think, isn't it? <laughs> so, so yes, really, I, I, I think, um, um, and and sort of, I'm I'm going to keep coming back to this this point that that I think it it should become more and more clear that we want to be in the right hemisphere predominant mode when we are uh, making music, and. Um, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here because because I I I do kind of want to go through all of these differences between the left and right hemisphere. And by the way, I've got several sheets in front of me where where I've got tables and I've got left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and and there's loads of stuff. And I've basically only done four <laughs> out of loads and loads and loads of them. There's so much to go into, but uh, but yeah, the the tangent is classical music, in particular, I think. Instantly, if we're not careful, fires up a left hemisphere driving the bus state of mind. It's like, oh, classical music. Yes, this, this has to be very high level. There's got to be analysis. It's, it, it has to be, all the notes have to be right. Everything has to be correct. People are going to judge it. And, and it, I think it's very, very challenging to not be yanked into a very left hemisphere dominant state of mind 
when we are making classical music or even listening to classical music. I know that when I was um, a music student, I think in the beginning, I was, it was very hard to listen to music without being in this very left hemisphere, very unemotional, very analytical state of mind, especially because I was studying composition at the time. But, um, and I think this is really interesting as well, because sometimes I, I turn up to different groups of people, like, like, um, you know, me and Yaisa met through, um, a meetup group, which is mostly, mostly classical, pianists and you can see generally that people are in an intense left hemisphere state of narrow focus <laughs> because because we're all terrified and i think there is something yeah. in particular about classical music that emphasizes this state of sort of being on show of having to perform of having to deliver the goods of having to be analytic in, in what we're doing and sometimes well, you, I, I, I got the impression sorry to interrupt you again but sure. I, i've got the impression that you're slightly underestimating the the analytical capacity as well when it comes to learning piano or anything else you need a lot of analytical capacity to to analyze what, what you're reading what you're playing um to memorize to you, you have to to analyze a lot and i'm not saying that we shouldn't be we shouldn't freak out every time every time we meet there yes. <laughs> to play no 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 i, I totally get <laughs> that's what you're that's, a, that's completely separate but but uh, yeah where i was talking about uh, yeah negative moods um that sadness <laughs> and and that's also a negative mood may be that anxiety that uh, fear that fear Uh, and that really puts off the the cognitive mode. Uh, it switches it switches it off. Uh, it affects the, the 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 cognitive ability as well, doesn't it? Um, so there's a mixture there. It's got complex again. I, I'm not sure. I'm not I'm, sure. I'm, I would counter that. That that I think fear in the way that you're describing it is a is a left hemisphere function because it's about it's about survival it's about a threat to the ego it's about it's about my ability to perform you know and that actually a lot of the, the and, and there's a lot of study into, into basically what goes wrong in flow that when someone is in a deep state of flow and performing well and when they're not performing well what actually happens is that there's too much thinking there's too much analysis there's too much questioning what you're doing and so um That would be my counter. But I agree with you that, of course, we need, of course, we need the left brain. And um, and this is a point that Ian McGilchrist keeps coming back to over and over again in his book, which is that, that you know, he keeps saying that people think that that he's saying that the left brain hemisphere is bad and that we we shouldn't use it. And that's not true at all. The danger is when the left brain thinks that it is the only thing that should be working. But I'll come back to that. I do want to come back to that. And so it's something that... that I think as we come to this in future podcast episodes, it's exactly this issue of how do we balance the right brain and the left brain analytic? How do we practice in a way that we can keep coming back to, to the right brain hemisphere? Or, you know, I have some students who have, who don't use enough left brain hemisphere and use too much right hemisphere. And I've got to say that is unusual. That's not, Most, that is not usually the, the case. Most people are balanced that it's too much left. But there are some that do not use enough left. And with them, I'm, I balance them the other way around. 
So I'm I'm not saying that that we we shouldn't be using it. It's just yeah. how do we balance mm-hmm. it? That is very very that is an art that is the art of music so so yes i was talking about the classical music groups where you can see people in a particular sort of frame of mind which is which i think is relatively left brain hemisphere dominated and then i'm a jazz guitarist and so sometimes i go to to meetups of people who play jazz guitar and in many ways these are very very similar equivalent groups of people just as fearful of playing in front of other people, but because it's jazz. <laughs> and, you know, I hope people get it as well by this, even the way that I say the word jazz. You know, it, it implies that, that, that we're in the body. There's less concern with, with having to be narrow focused and striving that it's like just what it is, man. And, and, and the thing about jazz, you can't play jazz unless you analytically know what you're doing at some point or another. You you can't, like for most people, for almost anyone, you can't just turn up and play whatever. Uh, I know a lot of people believe that that's what jazz is, but that is not how jazz works. You seriously <laughs> need a lot of theory to even begin to understand playing jazz. It's very paradoxical because you can learn to play classical music without understanding any theory. If you just play these notes, um, and, and you, you, you don't even have to read music, although it helps. You can learn classical music by watching YouTube videos. A lot of people teach themselves by watching, you know, videos of where the fingers are on the keys. You, you can play classical music without any theoretical understanding, without any analysis. It's possible. You can't really do that with jazz. You have to actually know, ah, oh, we're playing over this kind of a chord and we use this kind of a scale and it's, and it's this kind of the chord moving to this kind of chord. But somehow when you, <laughs> when jazz people play, there's a whole culture. There's an entire unspoken culture that, that you use your right brain more. And, and there's so many kind of social cues. That the, the right brain goes. No, I'm the one for 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 this job. Um, do you do you know what I mean, Yaza? Yeah, slightly. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I never went to. I tried. I tried it for a year, and I I learned the theory. Oh, uh, enough yeah. theory to to start, but then I couldn't make it because probably my left hemisphere was stopping me from <laughs> doing anything <laughs> anything useful. <laughs> But but did you know what I mean? Because we were having this conversation actually. Um, uh, um, that I remember that that you, you were well, just saying performers that, that, and yeah, classical just, just, performers, yes. yes, and jazz yeah. performers and were, were we sort all... of quite disparaging about classical performers. But 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 what I'm sort of pointing out is that there is a there's like an anthropological difference in very deep ways of just how classical musicians are and how jazz musicians are on very deep levels about the ways in which they they use their awareness and their attention in very different ways in very deep cultural ways if you know what i mean and also the expectations not just to, yeah. not just the what would the yeah and what so you antici- know i think what we anticipate when we talk, when we listen to classical music we we anticipate different things we expect different things and mm. probably our intent, our attention, or even our general emotion, uh, it's uh, different. Uh, uh, just before, even before, from the from the moment you know that you're going to listen to one or the other, 
Uh, I can't uh, I can't say play because I can't play jazz. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, so you know, one of the reasons that I'm going so deeply, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but but one of the reasons that I'm going so deeply into not only um neuroscience and brain lateralization and the different parts of the brain. Like, for example, I'm really into the role of the insular cortex at the moment, but also things like polyvagal theory. And uh, and I'm into this um, thing called um, um, self-determination theory, which talks about um, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and, and all different aspects of psychology. And a lot of the reason why I'm so, so interested in all of this stuff is I'm trying to find as many tools as I can for trying to undo some of the cultural damage that I think has been done to a lot of my students, that when they sit down and try and learn an instrument, there's a lot of brainwashing and a lot of stuff going on um, subconsciously in the brain, which is like, right, I'm learning an instrument, I'm learning classical music, that means I have to approach it in this kind of a way. And so much of the time, these kinds of um, implicit subconscious beliefs are just so unhelpful and and so wrong. So, you know, what you said earlier on um, about a lot of the time when we're learning uh, an instrument, that we have to be um, very analytic. I think sometimes we do, and sometimes we, the the left brain justifies how much we're not going to use the right brain hemisphere, how much we're not going to approach something in a way that could feel easy and effortless and enjoyable and deeply connected and where we feel all the emotions because we have to work really, really hard and it's hard <laughs> and we have to focus really hard and we've got to concentrate. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and you know, these things can, can go really, really deep. And so a lot of uh, all of these things that, that I look into is sort of like a, a way of appealing to the left brain's own logic and own way of understanding things, because I know that's how my own brain works. I know so much of the time when I am practicing and and performing, I recognize my left brain does not want to let go. And I have to kind of and, and 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 it's like i have to use its own way of understanding how the world works to go look you you understand that you that through your own logic that you've got to let go a bit now right <laughs> and um <laughs> um so yeah the, this is like the the reasoning behind a lot of um all of the stuff that i'm talking about today uh, in this podcast but um i'm wondering if we should start wrapping this up for today even though i feel like we have barely got anywhere we've barely barely scratched the surface so i think having for for everyone who's listening having very very loosely um introduced this subject i'm going to listen back to it um make show notes and then make some very very strong notes of where i think this could be steered to next and share them with yaisa so that then the next episode is going to be a lot more structured a lot more left brain actually <laughs> this episode has just been right. very right, right brain um because i know a lot of people uh, will probably just be listening to this going well that was all very waffly but but i need some left brain information so we will be giving that in the next episode where i go okay these are the actual you know tangible categorized ways of how this helps you yes have you got any comments questions for, from any of that yaisa no but i'm uh, really looking forward to 
to what you will be saying in the next one. <laughs> to be continued next time uh, with more talk about cats as well. Uh, so any, anyway, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for, for tuning in. And um, if Thank you, you uh, uh, and, and, and for everyone who's listening, please do uh, rate the podcast, leave comments. Um, it's always good uh, for people to support us uh, so that more people can, can find us. And uh, we will see you uh, the next time. Um, hopefully me and Yaisa will, will record another one of these next week going into a lot more detail. Anyway, thanks very much for tuning in and see you the next time. <laughs>